0: I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Renowned for her straightforward, gimmick-free approach to skincare, Dr. Ellen Gendler is highly regarded as a leading authority in cosmetic dermatology. A board-certified dermatologist, she's consistently included in New York Magazine's Best Doctors List. Dr. Gendler is also known for her work with neurotoxins and soft tissue fillers, as well as her experience with reactions to cosmetics. A clinical associate professor of dermatology at NYU Medical Center, where she was a co-director of the contact dermatitis division for many years. She is also a fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology and a former trustee of the Dermatology Foundation. She's the author of numerous scientific publications and is regularly quoted in all the popular magazines. She completed her residency in dermatology at the New York University Medical Center Skin and Cancer Unit with additional training at St. John's Hospital for Diseases of the Skin in London. Dr. Gendler has been appointed a New York City Honorary Police Surgeon. She and her husband, Dr. James Salick, reside in New York City. They have two sons. Welcome in my chair.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Quinn. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, you had about like 10 more um, universities and studies and things. And I thought Forget I'm it. never going to be able to get through it.
1: Don't um, even, totally. This is but perfect. that was a perfect it. The,
0: the amount of school to me as somebody who didn't thrive in school, whenever I hear that somebody, you know, it seems like you must have graduated when you turned 40 or 50 with all the different <laughs> universities and and then you're not really done. You're still studying and like, I don't know.
1: Well, Did you like obviously, school? Uh, obviously, I liked school because if I didn't, I would never have gotten here. And you're right. It's an endless amount of training. I don't know how how many people actually appreciate that, but you know, it's four years of college, four years of medical school, then some research, then an internship for a year, then a residency for three to five years, and then some people do specialty training after that. And then we have what's called maintenance of certification, so we have to pass tests every few years and we have to get certified with credit. So in order to maintain this, it's, it's, it is a real full-time job.
0: Wow. And is it hard? Like, I mean, this is a dumb question, but, but was it really challenging, like going in medical school and dermatology school?
1: I mean, it's, we don't call it dermatology school. We call it medical school. Oh,
0: well that's the the technical term I like to use dermatology
1: dermatology training, but as you know you know those of us who have been down this road being pre med is not fun it's grueling and it's very competitive and if you get through it it really means you should have had a great desire to do this because you cannot do this if you don't love 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 it and there's a lot of physician burnout which is which is really pretty sad but yeah it takes it takes a lot and it takes a village you got to have an understanding family and friends and you don't get to do all the fun things that other people do but in the end In my opinion, there's no better profession in the entire universe than what we physicians do. Really? That's the truth. What do you love about it? Mm, I was going to say everything, but I don't love everything about it. The best thing to me is that you get to, and it sounds so corny, but I really mean it. You get to help people in a way that is indescribable because as anyone will, will tell you when they don't have their health, they nothing else matters and nothing makes one bit of difference. And for me, I get to know people from the time they're little kids to the time they're old people. It's just amazing. That's why it's part of the reason why dermatology has become one of the most popular specialties. And it's the pretty much the hardest specialty to get accepted into. So, you know, you you can't, there's no rest for the weary. Even when you're in medical school, you've got to excel because otherwise you're never going to get in.
0: I once heard that dermatology was like the ugly stepchild of uh, uh, original like a long time ago and that it wasn't the most desired
1: um well that was specialty probably, god knows when that was but that was before my time but you know right I, I, why did I decide to go into dermatology I'll tell you is because the dermatologists honestly when I went to medical school at Columbia They were the smartest people I knew. So when there was a patient that was sick in the intensive care unit with all system failure and happened to have some sort of skin eruption and the dermatologist would go in as a consult, they could figure anything out. It's kind of remarkable. And that's when I decided this is for me. Because I always was interested in the skin, you know. Everyone used to tell me when I was growing up, "Oh, your skin's so beautiful!" And but I, I never really knew how important skin was until I experienced it as a medical student. And the skin's the largest organ, but so many diseases—I almost said virtually all diseases—but that's not quite true. But so many diseases have manifestations in the skin, and we're called on all the time to help other doctors, whether they are internists, surgeons, obstetricians, and gynecologists, we help all of them come to diagnoses uh, that they might not have otherwise gotten.
0: Wow. I never realized that. So it's like you will be called in as a specialist and maybe help them understand a part of the puzzle.
1: It's incredible.
0: So when you started, when did you start, uh, when did you become a doctor?
1: Many years ago. (laughs) Okay.
0: My, my only, my only reason for asking this is that was cosmetic dermatology a thing.
1: So, okay. I can say that. So I'll, I'll, I'll change around how you're asking. Um, You know, when I became a dermatologist more more than 30 years ago, cosmetic dermatology was not a thing. It was not a thing. And if you expressed any interest in cosmetic dermatology, you could forget about it. The chairman of the department would just think you were so stupid um, or just, you know, selling out, selling out. Now, everyone has sold out, uh, at least the younger generation. So we're in a different situation. But how did I get into cosmetics? Well, I came about it in a, in a unusual, not really unusual, but a different way from how the people who call themselves cosmetic dermatologists do today. And that was that I had a specialty in contact dermatitis, which is allergies of the skin. And the department at NYU was considered the biggest department in the United States. So we would see all sorts of allergic reactions to everything, you know, every substance in the universe. But as skincare products began to proliferate, we would see people who had reactions to cosmetics and they would send them to us to evaluate and see what they were allergic to, to see what preservatives and fragrances and everything else. And so I became expert in that. And I had some additional training in London with another expert in the world. Um, And so this is what I did. And because I had gotten involved in so many of these testing situations, that's what I became known for. And it allowed me to participate in the launch of lots of cosmetic products, including injectables. And so I came into it from the academic end but it has morphed into a completely different thing nowadays
0: does it still have i guess outside of new york city and la and things like that does it still have a reputation among your peers of to use your word selling out because it Um, perhaps is less altruistic than you know helping someone with a, a, a serious medical condition
1: well i would say probably yes but I feel like I'm in the other, I I stand with many of the other people um, because I don't like where the specialty has gone at all, though I participate in it and I, and I, you know, I have a very large cosmetic practice. I also have a very large medical dermatology practice as well. I can't imagine having done this much training and worked so hard and just to deal with people and their little cosmetic concerns. It would not work for me.
0: Right. Okay. So I want to hear more about, cause you kind of went there about what don't you like about the, the direction or where the, the cosmetic dermatology or dermatology in general are going?
1: Well, I, I sound like a snob and I don't mean to be, but I, I am a little bit of a snob and that first and foremost, we are physicians, you know, do no harm. We took the Hippocratic oath, help people. That doesn't necessarily mean do every procedure that is available to every single patient who walks through your door. And it doesn't mean that you need to sell patients a bill of goods that they, that they have to spend, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars on products. It doesn't mean that. And it means really trying to sit down and understand what, what is behind this. You know, every patient is different and there are patients who will never be happy with the way they look, which is very sad. And there are ways to maximize the beauty and health of a patient's skin without going crazy so I I'm very much a physician who takes care of problems that are not only cosmetic sometimes psychological and often medical
0: Mm, you're like I can't help you today but I know a great psychiatrist in New York City who actually could help.
1: honestly that that's true I mean there are many people who have psychological problems that affect their skin and how they perceive themselves and that's that's troubling and it's getting worse and worse with social media and the fakeness of half of the things you see on social media. It makes people feel terrible about the way they look. Filters make people think that you can actually look like that. And it's, it's very disturbing, it really is.
0: So do you have people who come into your office who you say, I'm not really a match for you?
1: Oh, do I? I certainly do, definitely do. And you can tell in one second. And I'll be honest, sometimes when I get patients, and it's not that often, but when I get patients who come to me because they've found me on Instagram, I have to say that many of them, many of them turn out to be great patients, but many of them don't because they're looking for something that is just not possible. And I don't jive with some of those people. It happens, you know, it doesn't happen infrequently.
0: Oh, wow. So I'm also curious, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a, Makeup artist, I so, do. Know. Okay. I, learned. Um, I had a guest on recently who didn't know. And I was like, oh, my well, God, I, I should have told you. Um,
1: I learned from listening to some of your podcasts. Oh,
0: wow. I'm so honored that you listen. Um, I. Okay. So there's a certain thing that in my mind that there's dermatology, which doesn't have which you don't have to have that hand or that eye. Really, it's the eye. Like in makeup, I'm looking like you can pretty much figure out how to do eyeliner but it's it's the vision of the artist right so when you go from being um a doctor to now doing something that is aesthetic was that what was that transition like or how did you teach yourself to look at men and women in perhaps a different way
1: Well, that's a great, great question, and a really important one. So, you know, that's where experience counts. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's been in practice for a long time has an aesthetic eye. Obviously, you know that you can see, you know, somebody who's been getting dressed for a long time doesn't necessarily always, you know, look put together well. But there are scientific principles that determine what's perceived as beauty and facial shape and proportion. And if you know and understand those they go back to da vinci if you know and understand those and study it you have an appreciation for what really looks good but and again not everyone is beautiful to everyone you know but how can you maximize the attractiveness of somebody's face by working toward the ideal proportions you know the golden Mm -hmm. ratio that's what you have to aim for and and you can be the smartest person in the room you could could have graduated number one in your medical school class but the top derm residency a superstar past the boards at the highest score possible and be a terrible cosmetic dermatologist so experience is really important and when i see uh you know super young derms who are brilliant, calling themselves master injectors and whatever. You can't be a master injector until you do this for quite a while. You could have great hands and you can be wonderful at it, but practice usually does make perfect. Just ask Malcolm Gladwell.
0: But there's always room for, like I assisted and had, and learned in that way, that was like, I wasn't just like, oh, I understand everything and can do that. I do think there are some people who probably, like Kevin O'Quan back in the day, who probably just were uh, savants, you know, but, 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 but most people and probably people who are better at teaching and explaining and know why they're doing what they're doing right. have to do what you said. Cause it's- I can actually break down technically what I'm doing, whereas maybe someone who just did it without any help wouldn't know why they're doing it.
1: But they might get a good result, and that's true. And that's that's definitely true. There are people who have better hands than others in every field, and you, I at least can tell when I have one of the residents training with me and I watch them inject because I train a lot of residents, I know on day one who will turn out to be a great injector. I know it. I can see it in their hands, but they get better. You know, you get better as you do it longer. And then I guess eventually you get worse, but, you know, at a certain point. But
0: Isn't a lot of this, like, what I'm hearing from you, it comes down to taste? Um,
1: Yes and no. So, yes, because, you know, we get... Criticized if you quote body shame. So if you comment that somebody has injected cheeks that look ridiculous, you get body shamed for having said that because it's, you know, to each his own. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really scientifically based principles. When you do studies and you ask groups of people and they've published articles on this as what is most attractive. The, the preponderance of people will choose the same faces, even if they are, even if they have um, individual characteristics that might not be so attractive. The way the face is proportioned seems to be standard in terms of the interpretation. And even if you have babies look at faces, you see where their where their eyes are drawn. It's incredible how uniform this is. There's a certain proportion to a face that draws people in.
0: And you don't think we're taught that from advertising and you know um, baby popular felt, culture? Right.
1: No, I don't think so. No, 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 no. I don't think this so. This is innate. No, uh-huh. no. <laughs> but when you look, if you were given a series of faces to, to choose from, and they don't necessarily have to be beautiful ones or classically beautiful ones, you would probably be drawn to the same to the same uh, same thing, and it's. You know, when when people have exaggerated injections done, these gigantic Russian lips or whatever they want to name them this week, you know, that it's not, it's abnormal. And so, yes, somebody might think it looks great, but it really is not great. And it's not great to be distorting our, our features in such a way, um, in my opinion.
0: I also find that when, like, Sometimes the best compliment for me as an artist is if someone just says, wow, her skin is so beautiful without seeing the work that I'm doing. And I imagine in dermatology, there's two factors. One is you don't, a good dermatologist, in my opinion, you don't want to see the work. And second of all, you don't necessarily get to brag about it. Like I can (laughs) post on social media, look at, you know, my client and isn't she wonderful? You, on the other hand, aren't gonna blast all over town unless you have an agreement with that person. Like, you know, look what I did.
1: That's true, and I I actually, I don't really like to ask patients, can I post you on social media? I, I don't really like to do that, which is what makes befores and afters kind of tough, I don't even believe many of the befores and afters that I see, and as you can, as a makeup artist and someone attuned to beauty, you'll notice that the lighting is usually different in these befores and afters. So half the results you just you, you can't even trust. You really even
0: can. the angle of the chin yeah. can make yeah. if you if you push your chin down, you know, uh, a quarter of an inch, it can completely change the the way the light is contouring your face and everything. Completely. So completely. it's not a scientific thing right. to have a before and after, although they can be very compelling and, and great at the be, same time. if
1: they're done right and they're real, then they can be very compelling. But for me, I think that patients need to trust the people uh, who treat them and and you know see other patients whom they've treated. And that's the best way to really learn what to do. But experience is very important, in my opinion. It really is.
0: So what do you think for people who don't necessarily even live in one of the metropolitan areas, what should they look for in, let's say cosmetic dermatologist, um, in terms of like being able to match your aesthetic?
1: That's a hard question to answer because you may not have too many to choose from, but I guess the best way would be to to have a look at a friend or meet somebody who look great and ask who they have been treated by. And that will be your first step um I think in in making a choice.
0: Do you think it's important that um someone go to a dermatologist who is either from their same culture, race, or has a a specialty about skin, um the about the skin uh, I don't know the word, the way to say this. The, the, the same race. Like, do you think it's it would be advantageous for some some a Black American to see a Black dermatologist because they have more experience in I that field?
1: I, I actually do not. That would be like saying that. Um, and you know, forgive me for sounding strange here, but that a woman should never see a male doctor or a man should never see a female doctor, or you should never go to a pediatrician who doesn't have children. No, I don't think race has anything to do with it. You need to see a a physician who has a familiarity and an interest in all skin types. And that's why there's such a push now um, in terms of teaching diverse skin conditions in every population is a huge emphasis on this now in training
0: is there a big difference between the skin of different races
1: uh, there is a yeah there are big differences you know the darker your skin is the less likely you are to have such severe photo damage there are diseases that are um that are classically in people with black skin and not in in caucasian skin and vice versa um they manifest differently they look different or something that might look um brown in a white skinned person might look Almost black in a darker skin person, and uh, scaliness, which looks white on a light skin person, looks gray in a darker person. There's so many different manifestations, but skin is skin.
0: Yeah, because we are also a lot more alike than not alike.
1: Right. Right.
0: What I've noticed also from doing makeup is that um, you know the products that I use on different skin tones there's so much overlap that I might use the same color that perfectly matches on an Eastern European on someone from Asia or on someone on the lighter end of um, black. And yeah. it's it's the same, you know, and then also if you get into really deeper tones, South Indian Sri Lankan can be sup- uh, just as um, rich and dark as many black people Sure. and you might end up using the same some of the same products and stuff so it's like we have the yeah. social this is a side note but so yeah, we is. have these constructs about race and skin and beauty but in reality um it's really about for me looking at the person and seeing what actually works
1: that that's that's entirely true and it doesn't matter what your skin color is for, if you're a woman, this doesn't really happen in men, but in women, you can get melasma. It might look a little different, a slight different, slightly different color in a in a fair-skinned white woman than it does in a darker-skinned um, black woman, but it's darker pigment no matter what. And the treatment can be similar, although not necessarily exact. The
0: Same for makeup, not to keep comparing our professions, because I went to a lot more schooling and, than you did, but... Um, <laughs>
1: Oh, I get it. You I know
0: it. The, the the principles of color and color theory and everything are the same. It's just a different, right. a different uh, ratio yeah. or you know thing. Right. Um, yeah. Why are you with all of this? You know, uh, with all of these degrees and training and everything, why are you doing social media?
1: <laughs> You're, you sound like my husband. He's like, "Why are you?" Doing this? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I, I honestly can't answer. I'll tell you how it started, which is ridiculous, but. Um, last summer I had a bad back injury and I was laid up and I was on high doses of steroids. So I was up literally all night and I couldn't sleep. I would read and do this and that. And I found myself scrolling on social media, looking at different things. And when I started to see what was being posted, I don't know, I got inspired and I made a couple of posts about sunscreens, which is really my passion and has been for decades. And, they went crazy. It, we, I watched my phone. I watched my, my Instagram account. It was the most insane thing. I just literally watch thousands of people joining up. And it just said to me, the, there's so many people that want to learn about this. And the information that they're getting is terrible. It's just really terrible. And I like to laugh. And, you know, I think my kids say I'm my own best audience, but I I think I'm, you know, I like to have fun and my patients will attest to that. I mean, I'm not a, not a real dry person. And so I I don't know, it just was, uh, it was something that just came to me and I I really like doing it, though lately I'm getting kind of frustrated by it. Um, because there's so much hate out there and there's so much misinformation. So there's got to be some happy medium. I'm not sure what it is. And believe me, it's a lot of work, though. I have no studio. I don't have a big setup. I sit at my little desk and I go to my office at 630 in the morning before I start seeing patients. I have this stupid ring light that's attached to my windowsill, a clip-on thing. And I just talk into my phone. So it's not a sophisticated setup in any way, shape or form.
0: Have you benefited from it professionally?
1: Oh, that's a tough way. to. I'm not sure how to answer that question. So I don't take money for anything. So while a lot of the dermatologists that I look at, um, they they are sponsored by you name it, any company. And now I even saw one last week that's sponsored by a bank. They'll take money for anything. And so to me, all of those posts are not believable. Is it possible that one of those products for which they're getting paid is a great product? Yeah, it's possible but not because you're listening to the posts that they do on social media. And I have gotten approached by countless numbers of companies. I have uh, I have boxes and bags and shelves full of products that have been sent to me to do these kind of things. And once that happens, it's you are you're, you're not it's just not not a good way to, to teach people about skincare. So, have I benefited professionally? I certain haven't haven't benefited financially that is for darn sure um i've i've it's been fun because i've met people from all over the world which is fantastic mm-hmm. and i ne- i don't like doing video consults f- to my own patients but now i i even will do video consults in the evenings with people from you know india uh, the philippines from uh, and and from california and and mexico and it's really fun. And and a few of those people, a a patient from Singapore actually flew in and saw me. So that if that's a benefit, yeah, I meet all kinds of people. I've learned so much from the people I've met and contacted on social media. Um, It's that's actually inspired me to go back to school to get a degree in cosmetic chemistry, which I'm in the process of doing if you can believe that after my god
0: again.
1: But you know, if I'm, I mean, I think I'm pretty expert on this, but yeah, I'm a cosmetic chemist, but I love to learn and I want to be the best that I can be at everything I do.
0: And but, do you know where that's going? Is that so that no, you then can?
1: No, I just, it's nice for, I, I, I just like to be educated and always be accurate. And I like to be corrected if I'm not, but I try never to give bad information. So, um, you know, I'll travel around the world to go to conferences. I'm going to the European sunscreen meetings in a couple of months. I I just really want to be the best at what I do. And, um, and I don't want anyone to say, oh, look at her. she's sold out. And there's a lot of hate. I get these messages from, I call them nut jobs when I post things on Instagram where they'll say, oh, you just want to you just want to be paid by big pharma. I, I don't get paid five cents from anyone <laughs> except when I'm in my office seeing patients. So it's nonsense. And there are products that I love and will support, but it's only based on years of using them and seeing them, uh, how my patients respond to these products. If you offer me to do three TikTok videos for your cream that you just sent me in the mail, it ain't happening.
0: Right. So I have a question because I'd like the idea of buying a skincare product. I like the idea of buying makeup from a makeup artist and having their expertise be a part of coming up with, you know, the, the, the product and using all of their vast experience that went into whether it be a blush or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So in theory, I like the idea of buying skincare from a doctor, but mm a lot of this now the doctors selling creams that are yeah. you know no. hundreds of dollars is there something that a doctor brand has an let's just say an edge on other brands that I'm are
1: going, not? I'm going well it depends on which doctor brand but let me tell you that 90 um, this is a inaccurate percentage, but I'm going to use it anyway, 90% of products that you see in a dermatologist office are not developed by dermatologists. They, they're developed by other companies, and some of them are for dermatologists, but now virtually everything is available to everyone anywhere. But there are some dermatologists who have come up with their own lines, Okay, and few, very few of those have actually developed them themselves with cosmetic chemists, Um, About 25 years ago, I came up with a few basic products myself that I worked on really hard with a cosmetic chemist. They were mine and mine alone. In fact, the cleanser that I created 25 years ago, which is my favorite product in the world. I actually um, came up with the fragrance by using a a very well-known nose. And I actually own this fragrance at IFF. It's, it's It's pretty cool. So no one else can use it. And I love it. But no, most dermatologists who sell their products in their office with their name, it's made by some branding company that has a set number of products that they have. And then they put your labels on them. So I don't agree. I think that there are very few real dermatologists developed uh, products. That doesn't mean that products that they sell in their office have not been uh, created with good R&D by bigger companies, you know, so, so that is a fact. But I don't think you necessarily should believe that a dermatologist's name on a product means that, that he or she or they developed it.
0: I have a question and then I want to get into um, skincare for the listeners, but do you, th- I was surprised to hear that you put fragrance in a, in a product. Cause I, w- I, I never know. Is it, is it categorically bad to have fragrance on the face?
1: Okay. So let's talk about that. It's funny that you should mention this because I was thinking about fragrance this morning and I'm thinking about doing a post on this, you know, fragrance is really maligned. It really is. And even though, fragrance is one of the most common contact allergens, it's a very uncommon contact allergen. So the other complicating factor is that when you see the word fragrance on a product ingredient list, that doesn't tell you much because most people who have fragrance allergies are allergic to one or only a few notes in a fragrance and fragrances are considered trade secrets. So you don't have to, if you're a perfumer or a fragrance company, you don't have to say we have two parts rose to one part sandal. You don't have to say that. And and as someone, if someone is sensitive to fragrance, they may only react to the rose extract and everything else can be fine. The other thing is that it's one of the most hyped allergens in the world. So when when people say they're a quote allergic to fragrance, what does that mean? The ones who are bona fide allergic are are similar to people who are allergic to poison ivy. When they get exposed to it, they get a blistering rash or redness or or uh, or some kind of visible skin reaction. Many people are sensitive to fragrance, and that can mean anything from when they smell something they get, they feel nauseated or their eyes itch. You know, that's a sensitivity, and everyone perceives these things differently. I have patients who come into the office wearing some perfume that I think is horrific, and it ruins my day. Okay. (laughs) I'm sensitive. I don't like scented candles. They literally make me feel ill, but I'm not allergic to fragrance. And so that's really important. And there, you know, fragrances sometimes make a product very pleasant to use, and it makes you drawn to that product. They do. If you're a person who has no fragrance allergies, or fragrance sensitivities, then why not use it? There's no reason not to. But why not
0: not use it and just say, now everybody, we know nobody's gonna have at least an allergic reaction to fragrance.
1: that would be fine, okay. But you see, there's other ingredients that are put into cosmetic products that smell awful just by virtue of what they are. And so sometimes masking fragrances are put into products. They're not scented like lilies, but they they camouflage the scent, the smell that might smell like rotten eggs when you put two things together. And masking fragrances can cause problems too. So I don't, I never say you everyone should use. Um, Fragrance-free products. I don't unscented is different from fragrance-free, okay? Because unscented means you could have a masking fragrance that that doesn't doesn't allow you to smell what's in it, but it doesn't mean that there's not a fragrance. So it's a really complex issue. And if you feel that you can't tolerate fragrances, then don't use. Then use a product that doesn't have one. That's great, but it doesn't mean everyone should do that. No.
0: This reminds me. I I was going to get into this later, but. There is, in my opinion, an unscientific consensus of people online who create uh, safe labeling. You know, you have every brand now has, you have, and I'm not saying these are bad, but you have uh, companies that have their version of what is clean, whatever oh, that means. Ugh. But uh, so... Yeah, well, that answers my question. Is like when you get these lists of 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 uh, censored pro- products, okay. products that can't be in something. But what happens is, if you want to sell your product on a mass scale, even if you don't think that ingredient is harmful, you're now kind of bullied into not including it because yeah. you won't be able to make money at xyz retailers
1: correct that's that's just because you're bullied and so these bullies are loud they're very loud and and it's really upsetting but you know the fda there's stringent regulations on what can and can't be in cosmetics and this is studied you know in great depth so the fda does not want to release things um that are dangerous now obviously cosmetics are not drugs but there are regulations, strict regulations in place for things that can and can't be in cosmetics. And clean means nothing. It doesn't mean anything. You know, you wash your hands and you wash your hands for 10 seconds. That's clean. And I wash my hands for 30 minutes. That's cleaner. So it's, it's the clean means nothing. Okay. It really doesn't in my opinion.
0: And are there like let's say three ingredients that you personally would look for on a list and go, okay, no, I'm not, but, I'm not using that.
1: No. Oh, would look for and not use. Right. Uh, I, I don't, you don't see them, but I think if something had formaldehyde in it, I wouldn't use it, but there is not a single ingredient that I would purpose purposefully avoid except if it's a waste of money. Okay. What so about talc? Well, yeah, you don't really see talc, much, you know, much anymore. So I, I don't specifically avoid it, but I don't really have products, even even body powders. It's rare to see something that has talc in it, right?
0: Well, you know, it's it. Every company right now is switching out from talc, but it's still right. it, up until the Johnson and Johnson right. settlement right. case that happened, it was widely used in in cosmetics and powders yeah. and everything, and it it it, it performs really well.
1: It does because it has that lovely feel when you're talking about makeup products, but the exposures that we're talking about really were more in full body use for many, many years of, of, you know, dousing oneself with, with powder. It's not about a one, you know, powdered eyeshadow.
0: Mm-hmm. How much money should you be spending on skincare per month? And what, and like, really, what are the basics that you need?
1: I, I, don't, I don't have a specific amount of money that you should spend per month, but it shouldn't be ridiculous. And I have a real short list of things that you should, that you should use if you want to have beautiful, healthy skin. And then there's the other things you should feel free to add. I, I say to my patients, I like analogies because I'm a simpleton. So I like to have analogies. We so can relate, you know, if you're leaving your house, you have to have a shirt and pants, right. Or a shirt and a skirt and choose. But if you want to add a scarf, be my guest. You want to add a jacket, go ahead. But there are certain basics that you should use. You should cleanse your face. Uh, Maybe you should moisturize your face separately. The things that I think are extremely important for everybody to use are sunscreen, blah, blah, blah. You hear this every day, but that's a big topic for me, what type of sunscreen. Sunscreen, I think that retinoids are one of the few Substances that have been tried and true and published in scientific journals to actually affect skin in a real way. So retinoids are the key. That's that's the, the the gold standard for skincare ingredients. Retinoids, and then I have a. I think that using antioxidants, especially if you are going to be outdoors in the sun or if you're in a city environment where there's lots of pollution, antioxidants important. And for me, there's a class of, uh, of products that's called uh, DNA repair products, and I and these are products that have been shown scientifically to actually help reverse DNA damage when applied to the skin, and it's really interesting. Um, there is a disease. That's called, it's a genetic disease. It's called XP, Xeroderma pigmentosum. And you might have heard of it by midnight children, or these are, these are people who are born without the ability to repair DNA damage to the skin. So these children, by the time they're seven, eight years old, they've already had freckling of their skin. The complete skin surface will be freckled. They've had crippling sunburns, and they, they can have hundreds of skin cancers by the time they're 10 years old. Mm. And there are, there's a few camps that, that are for these, for these kids that are really cool, and I volunteer at these camps, and I love it because the camp takes place at night So that, because these kids can't go outside. They really can't. So these DNA repair enzymes have been studied in children with 0 derma pigmentosum and been found to diminish the rate of precancers and cancers of the skin by 30 to 40%. That's dramatic. And so when, when these children use these products, it changes their skin in such a way that we know that they work. Now, why these are not considered drugs is beyond me, but they're not. And that makes it better for me because I can advocate that, uh, for these products and all my patients. But these ingredients are pretty expensive. And most skincare products don't have them. I'm always looking for great ones that do, and there are not many. But they are, they're they're really remarkable. And I think if we start teaching young kids to start using these things, sunscreen, DNA repair, and obviously you're not going to have a seven-year-old using a retinoid, but, you know, you get kids Mm -hmm. at a younger age invested in their skin, we're going to see a lot fewer problems in them as they get older.
0: How would, you find, um, the, how would you find a product, if you were looking, that has DNA repair?
1: Uh, I get, you know, there. I post about this a lot on, so, on, on social media, but I think you need to rely on your dermatologist, and that's where it's frightening that many dermatologists don't even know about these. Like, what is that about? We don't get training in cosmetic dermatology in residency because, again, it's considered more fluffy, but it's what most derm residents want to learn, and they try to seek this information outside. Um, and that's why it's important to go to conferences, to speak to real authorities, to speak to real key opinion leaders who know about this, if it's what you're interested in, if you want to promote skin health and beauty in your patients, even in patients that have serious skin diseases, you know, you can have lupus, you can have psoriasis. That's a, that's a disease and you still want your skin to look and feel great.
0: (laughs) What about salicylic acid? I've found that it really helped me in terms of um what is that condition I get on the sides of my nose that feels dry but it's actually an overproduction of oil?
1: Right, that's a good one. Seborrheic dermatitis. That's one of the
0: Yeah, it the- just rolls right off the tongue, right?
1: Well, for me it does, but I've had a lot of years of practicing saying it. But seborrheic dermatitis is exactly what you described. It's flakiness around the sides of the nose, in the eyebrows, on the scalp. And patients always think it's because their skin is dry. And it's actually, couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually because your skin is oily and the sebum and the oil and the, uh, the buildup on your skin causes an irritant reaction and irritation presents as flaking. Flaking is one of the ways that we monitor the irritancy of a, of a skincare product. When you're testing skincare products, that's one of the things that's one of the, the, the tests that are used is how much flaking or scaling does it produce? And that's very troubling to many patients because they think that by putting more moisturizer on their face, they'll get rid of this condition and they only make it worse. So That's
0: what you, I used to do.
1: Right, exactly. So, so salicylic acid is a keratolytic. It takes off the surface, the stratum corneum. It helps keep it keep it rolling, so to speak, and, and lifts scales. So it's a it's a really nice product to use if you're somebody with flaky skin. But if you use that without putting an emollient on on, on normal skin, not on seborrheic dermatitis, but if you just took regular skin surface that's not really dry, not really oily, and you used a lot of salicylic, or we call sal acid, you might get very dry and irritated from it so you, you need to make sure you use products that balance that with some moisturizing ingredients so that you don't dry the skin barrier out
0: do you have it? do you recommend different products for men and women because I saw you recommend the other day an estrogen cream for you know when I thought well maybe that's only for women yeah and it was but, for aging it wasn't estrogen for like menopause I if I well, understood it correctly
1: yeah, well there's a, estrogen for menopausal women, yes, that's a that's a whole other subject. But uh, skin that is going into perimenopause and menopause has does not have as much estrogen, and the estrogen receptors are still there in the skin. And we know that estrogen does have very positive effects on skin. So applying it locally, locally, not over f- the full body surface, applying it locally can help those local areas keep skin thickness and uh, maintain its appearance. I don't uh, use estrogen cream in men. Okay. You know, men have a whole different set of hormone issues and you know that men's skin doesn't thin as much as women's. There's so many factors involved in that. But well, you know them. what,
0: men have it so rough in society anyway that it's nice that at least we get that, you know? You
1: know, that, that's, that's really true. Cause you guys, it's really been <laughs> terrible for you through the ages, you know? You just haven't gotten anywhere.
0: We need more representation Me too. Um, what is there what procedures are you like excited about? Is there anything new coming out? I mean Botox has been around for a long time. fillers have been around for a long time. Is there anything that's like that people should start looking out for?
1: Oh well, there's always new procedures and That doesn't mean they should look out for them. Also, let me just say something. that When when we talk about new, what is the latest lasers? Lasers are devices. And when they get approved by the FDA, it's approved for safety. It isn't approved for efficacy. So just because a laser or a machine or a device is on the market doesn't mean that it gives good results. And it often takes years of using these things before you start to see what the problems might be you know, so something can be safe in a large preponderance of people. Safe meaning it doesn't kill anybody. It doesn't cause your skin to slough in most people. Oh, good. People. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? But when they're used over long periods of time, we start to see some problems. So for instance, while I use lasers all the time in my practice, and they are the best at, at, at uh, attacking certain issues, sometimes they aggravate problems. So melasma, for instance, when production of pigment that is largely related to hormones and sun exposure in some women who get pigmentation on their cheeks and the forehead or over their lip when they're pregnant or when they're on birth control pill. Sometimes doing lasers on these people can actually worsen it because we know that melasma is exacerbated not only by sun, but by heat. So there's a that new- just
0: happened to a client of mine. She got a big fancy laser session and she said it made her melasma worse and she regretted doing it
1: correct so so when i do a laser procedure on anyone who has melasma i will not do it unless they are preparing their skin in advance by using some things that help diminish pigment like hydroquinone or some of the other ingredients that can do that and retinoids i won't do a laser procedure without somebody having been on those things before they do it and then i resume them right after and and then there's also the whole sunscreen discussion but if you go to a doctor's office or now they call anyone who does a laser, a provider, which is scary. If they don't give you a routine to use before they start doing lasers on your skin for pigmentation or for resurfacing, then you're in the wrong place. Okay. Wrong place.
0: What about um, preventative Botox? I've always been kind of confused about that. Do you believe in that? And what do you think of these new um, Botox spas that are targeted to 30 and under?
1: for I mean, that, you know, Botox, preventative Botox. A Botox spot in itself makes me ill. It really does. I mean, there is a lot of training that goes into doing Botox well. There's a lot of nuance and, um, and technique that's involved. That doesn't mean that somebody who's a new injector couldn't be good at it but you really have to understand and even in those of us who have been injecting this for 30 years there's occasionally a problem a c- rarely but sometimes somebody's eyelid drops and you need to know how to take care of that problem so you know there are weekend c- courses that some aestheticians attend and they become quote master injectors they get a certificate from some dumb facility that gives you these certificates
0: from and- Florida they're always in Florida, like in a warehouse well, in Florida in when you're at it.
1: Up. <laughs> and they, it, you know, it, so any spa that is out there doing Botox, you will be lucky if you get someone injecting you who actually knows what he, she, they is doing. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I know that's a terrible thing to say, but it's completely the truth. And I'm not saying that only board certified dermatologists or plastic surgeons know how to inject. That's completely false. There are many Nurse practitioners, PAs, and even some estheticians who are very skilled and experienced injectors. So, being board certified in derm does not make you a great injector, but not having any credentials makes you a dangerous injector. So, preventive Botox what does that mean? Well, the theory behind it is that if that the reason you get these wrinkles is because the muscles move, and that is true. Think about your, your your slacks when you send them to the dry cleaner. And after a while of their being pressed, eventually that crease is ironed in. And that's what happens with lines. So when your mother tells you, don't make that face or it'll stay like that, she's right. If you frown over the course of many years, you're going to have those 11 lines. It's the way it works. The muscles are stronger than the skin. And when muscles pull eventually skin gives way and the line forms perpendicular to where the tension is. It happens. It's unavoidable. So theoretically, if you inhibited the contraction of those muscles forcefully for more years, you would have less deep lines. That's probably true, but we don't know at what point you need to start doing this in order to make this really effective. You know, obviously when you look at a two-year-old and you know her mother is screaming at her and she's frowning there's the action but you're not going to inject a 2 year old with botox right
0: oh you hear that for you've heard it here first folks don't <laughs> inject a 2 year old so,
1: you know you, we're like cars the moment you drive us out of the out of the lot we start going downhill so from the moment we're born our skin starts deteriorating at what point do you want to intervene i don't know the answer to that problem i feel lucky that many of my patients, I treat them and I treat their parents and I see what the parents look like. And you can tell, I do some lectures on this, which are very cool. You can see the pattern of facial movement from parent to to child often. And so if you know that a parent has brows that are so low, they're hanging over their eyes and they're actually uncomfortable and in some cases interfere with their vision then that would be somebody I might intervene a little earlier and use very subtle amounts of toxin to achieve a more relaxed um, look and a more relaxed muscle. It doesn't have to be paralyzed, but maybe you don't want it to work quite as much for that many years.
0: I met someone who was under 30 who was saying that they were considering getting a facelift.
1: I mean, that person, that's where a psychiatrist needs to be involved. And if any physician advised someone like that to do anything other than see a psychiatrist for serious help because that is scary, that's a terrible thing
0: yeah it was, and it's more it's it's not preventative or I just want to look that's like it. my best self it's I want to change the way Correct. that I look which Correct. if done tastefully, right. I'm not like morally opposed to it. I think no, it can no, be no. done well, but um. There's a certain a, amount of acceptance that has to go on, right?
1: I, within The same analogy as my used car scenario where you drive your, your, your brand new car out of the lot and it's now a used car. The moment the stitches are placed in your skin after a facelift, your skin knows how old it is. And from that five seconds later, it's starting to go back to where it wants to be, where it's supposed to be. So just because you have a facelift doesn't mean your skin is not going to continue to sag. And any surgeon who did something like that to a 30-year-old for sagging skin, I'm not talking about for a rhinoplasty to to change the shape of a nose, but for skin laxity should have his, her, their license revoked.
0: What about people who travel, um, a lot of people are going to Turkey for hair transplants that are like a fraction of the price. And I've heard, although I don't know this personally, that they do a good job. Do you, would you have opinions about going to South America or other countries to have work done?
1: I have no opinions at, about it because there are, tr- there are great injectors and or, or hair transplantation surgeons all around the world. So if you find a good one, doesn't mean they have to be in New York city. You know, they can be anywhere, but going for cheap doesn't often work out. And I've had patients who've had work done saying Costa Rica, who developed a problem and they came back to New York and no surgeon wants to help them. You know, Um, at least some collegiality, there's some collegiality. I know surgeons love seeing the bad results of other surgeons if they, if they can help. Um, But it's, you you know, you, you do this at your own risk. You're overseas and you have a problem, God forbid, then you're stuck in a hospital there. Who knows what you're getting, but yes, there are excellent hair transplant surgeons in other countries
0: do you think that the – I think that the lips have gotten a little better. To me, it's the one tell on a face is when you see somebody with the with the duck lips. Oh. But yeah. I have seen a newer treatment that they look less, like, egregious than they have in the past. And obviously, it has to do with how much you're injecting in them as well.
1: At how much and where. But, but I, I really do think that the impact of social media has been great here. Because while there are people who, who post these horrific lips – these gigantic butterfly Russian lips, there's a lot of responsible people posting about normalization of lips and how to make lips look good and just slightly enhanced. So I think social media has had a powerful impact on the improvement of these terrible procedures, but that doesn't mean there aren't many, many people out there doing uh distorted lips. And the other place that's that's I see distortion all the time is under the eyes. Just because there's a place on the face that you could inject doesn't mean you should inject it. And tear troughs or the under eye area is almost as much as lips, the most over-injected part of the face, in my opinion. And it usually mm. is bad.
0: Someone told me the other day that in studies, teenagers find that they have Dark under eyes, or that under eye is a concern for them.
1: It, that, that's it's so weird. Yeah. Well, you know, people are born with dark under eyes. And depending on your skin tone, if you have allergies and you rub your eyes a lot, your eyes will be darker. Depending on how thin the skin is, you can, the, the blood vessels reflect through the skin. So dark circles is not a sign of age. And it's really impossible to, to, Get rid of dark circles unless it's due to a particular cause that you can address. But putting filler in the under eye area to camouflage pigment doesn't, doesn't work in most cases. It really doesn't. Is there
0: a safe way to BBL,
1: Brazilian yeah. butt lift? Oh, oh, sorry, BBL. I'm sorry. Brazilian butt lift. BBL also means broadband light. And that's one of the common things we do. Oh. To- BBL, Brazilian butt lift, oh, that-
0: Injectables
1: in the butt. I mean, is there a safe way? Uh, I don't know what, if you don't have a reaction or a problem, I guess it's safe, but these are permanent, for the most part, these are permanent fillers and permanent fillers can mean permanent problems. I never, I never- want to do a permanent filler, especially huge volumes of permanent filler, which is what it takes to make a butt like that. You do that. What if in 20 years, a flat butt is the new style you're, you're done for.
0: Oh, then I'm going to be in trouble. Um, what, what about, um, buckle fat removal? Uh,
1: You know, I don't even know how to answer that. I guess there are surgeons who do it very judiciously and it looks good for a while, but by and large, removing buckle fat as you age, that's going to give your face a gaunt look, which is pretty much the whole purpose of injecting fillers is to reverse that gaunt look. I'm not a fan of buckle fat uh, removal. There are people who have faces that are just round and puffy with no definition And I suppose in those people doing a small amount of buckle fat removal might be okay, but they often have more fat deposits in their face than somebody else who might ultimately be gaunt. So, you know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm a less is more kind of person, you know, Mm -hmm. I use your help with makeup in a big way, as I'm sure you know, but I'm a less is more, don't do things that you might regret. You always know what you have. You never know what you're going to get. And just because you're the, an outstanding surgeon, you're, you're not God. You know, nothing, ha- nothing will turn out to be exactly what you or the patient envisioned. You might have a millimeter of a pull here. It, it just might not be perfect. So really think long and hard before doing permanent procedures.
0: And what do you think about drugs like Ozempic or in the, now there's trials to just kind of extrapolate the weight loss component of it? Do you, do you have an opinion about it?
1: Yeah, I have an opinion. For
0: cosmetics, not for, no, not I'm, for diabetes. I'm saying so, like, you know.
1: Yeah, no, no, I, I, no, I knew what you meant. Um, But you know, people, anything that comes on the market and is popular, there'll be doctors who jump on a bandwagon to make it now a, a name. So now they've come up with Ozempic face. There's nothing different about an Ozempic face than a face of someone who lost 20 pounds you know, by starving themselves it's, it's or, or by going on a keto diet or anything else. It's just weight loss. It's not about how you lost the weight. It's about losing the weight. Ozempic doesn't change that in your face. Right. So I, I have no problem. You know, that's a personal decision. If you want to take Ozempic or one of the other, uh, you know, products for weight loss, that's up between you and your physician, you know, and what it does to your face is a separate issue.
0: Do you think that like in 10 years it's going to be so widely spread and everyone's just going to be on it just to help cholesterol and their and their look better in clothing?
1: Uh, I don't know that it necessarily helps cholesterol, it certainly helps your A1C certain of them do and I I think that this is a trend that's going to stick. I do and there's going to be other drugs that will come out that are that are probably even more effective. Is it a little bit scary? It's a little bit scary because, you know, thin is not always good, and this runs the have the possibility of unleashing a, a you know a whole new slew of people with body dysmorphophobia, and I, I, it's it is frightening. But that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. There are people who just can't lose weight, and their health suffers, and their self esteem suffers. And if they can get some assistance from Ozempic, I'm, I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking, like, what if a hundred years from now, if we're still around? And people look back and see morbidly obese people and think, wow, can you believe people used to be like that because they've eradicated it with drugs?
1: Yep, I think that that's a, that's a distinct possibility, Quinn. I really think it is.
0: Um, Gail Murphy, who may, may or may not be my mom from Oakland, California, wants to know if there's a cream that you recommend for jowls.
1: No. Was that easy, an easy answer?
0: No, nothing can do it.
1: No, there is no cream that is going to fix jowls. Tell mm-hmm. that to your mom. So yeah. she and the kidding. neck.
0: What about the neck?
1: There's no cream that's going to reverse the the loose skin on your neck. That's gravity. That's it's thin skin. So. That's something that should be protected early on from sun, and you should use sunscreen and and retinoids on your neck starting at an early age, and maybe you'll be able to minimize that. But we have what's called intrinsic and extrinsic aging. Intrinsic aging is what happens to our skin if you've never left your house. If you're a monk and you don't go outside, you will still get saggy skin. It's just natural. Extrinsic aging is the additional problem you get from the elements, from sun, from pollution, from smoking, things like that. So you will always have some degree of uh, laxity, and we will not know. I guess maybe in your generation, for for kids who start using products earlier on, retinoids and good sunscreens. Maybe forty years from now, we'll see how their skin ages, and I bet it's going to be better than those of us who didn't have the benefit of these things when we were, you know, we were youngsters. Um, but tell your mom, sorry. It is just nothing, no skin product is going to reverse that.
0: I'm a nightmare on the beach. I mean, I wear are SPF you? clothing. Oh. I'm, I, I'm half I Irish, so my green. skin is pink. I have no yellow in my skin at all. And I just burn and I wear a hat and I wear opaque. I mean, there's nothing less sexy. I look like a piece of uncooked chicken, but and I, mean, I get made fun of, you know, especially my partner's French and they love to tan. It was like, you know, whatever, but... Um,
1: well, do you so
0: think, think that cream. I have a predisposition to premature aging because of yes. my skin tone?
1: Yeah. I don't know that you have a, you don't have a predisposition to laxity of your skin probably. Um, but if you were to sit in the sun with no protection and you were that fair, yeah, you probably would. But because you have probably burned so many times in your life, you have adopted um, ways of combating this. So you have protected yourself more than, say, somebody who's darker skinned who wouldn't. And photo age skin, they've done studies of, tw- of identical twins, one who's been in the sun and one who hasn't. If I showed you those pictures, it's it, it tw- adds 20 years. Or oh, I want to see that. And- I'll, I'll, I can send them to you, but one who, who smokes and one who doesn't, their skin looks completely different. So you can help yourself in a big way. You probably are more predisposed to skin cancers and things like that. And you certainly would be more prone to freckling. And let's just talk about freckling. Freckles are those cute little things that appear over the nose and the face of a you know seven year old. And at the end of the summer, they go away. When you see those on a 50 year old, it's no longer a freckle. It's now what we call a solar lentigo. That's sun damage. Your skin is fighting back. It's it's saying help protect me. That's what a tan is. A tan is, a, is your your innate desire to protect yourself. Tan of the skin is like. Um, I hate to say this word because there are some crazy people on Instagram who use this expression, solar callus. You know, when you get a callus on your foot because you walk and there's pressure on the bone in that area, your skin thickens to protect the bones on your face it, or your, your body, excuse me. You get, uh, you get production of melanin to help protect the DNA in your skin from damage, but that doesn't mean that your skin is not getting damaged and it's telling you that your skin is fighting back. So tan is bad. And using the word solar callus is not a good way to describe it because a callus is actually a good thing because it protects the bones. A tan is not.
0: I just feel like at at some point, though, I mean, just for me, that there's a quality of life issue. Like I might have to just go out at night to not get any freckles. Like I'm just you know what I mean? Like even I wear some I do it all. I'm going to get a little bit of that because otherwise I'm I'm just going to be inside all day.
1: Well, I use that. Thank you for saying that. And you never heard me, but I always talk about quality of life. You've got to live. So yes, is it is it bad for your skin to be in the sun? It is. But I'm a big tennis player. I'm a, I have a huge garden. I'm outside all the time. I just do it differently from how some other people do. So for instance, when I am outside in the sun playing tennis, I always wear, as apparently you do, a UPF, uh, UPF 50 shirt. Is it hot? you know i have i found brands that aren't so hot and it do i have to sometimes roll the sleeve up and expose some of my forearm i do but i do the best i can i'm not set telling people to stay indoors do i wear a baseball cap well if it's sunny no i wear a hat and then there's the issue of good sunscreens and that's a whole other topic for us but you know most of the sunscreens that are here in the united states the chemical sunscreens, all of the chemical sunscreens that are manufactured in the U.S., they don't have all the good ingredients that they have in Europe and Asia because they're not approved here because sunscreens are considered drugs. And I think that social media has brought this awareness to the fore, which is fantastic. But why don't more dermatologists understand this? I mean, I never recommend American Chemical sunscreens, American mineral You don't sunscreens. think
0: for daily use, SPF no.
1: 30
0: to 50 that avabenzone is enough to protect you? I
1: don't. No, I don't. Ugh. Not at all. Well, I don't because I see it every day in my office, and this is where experience is key. I see patients who are tan every day, and I'm like a broken record. Oh do you use sunscreen? I do. And then I I name my two least favorite American sunscreens and I know that they're going to be using them because avobenzone while it does shield against ultraviolet A somewhat is a very is a very unstable UVA protectant. And and the proof is in the pudding. You get tan when you use those products. So if you use European or Asian chemical sunscreens that have better sunscreen ingredients and our FDA is working on trying to get some of these approved you're better protected. So SPF doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, SPF refers to the protection against ultraviolet B. Those are the burning rays. And American sunscreens are great at protecting you from burning. If you apply good American sunscreen, most people don't burn unless they- I don't care
0: about a burn, but UVA for aging is what I'm concerned
1: about. Aging and pigment. So you need to use European sunscreens, period, the end. And you're very but what scared.
0: ingredient am I looking for in, well, when I go to Europe?
1: Really, I think that's probably a conversation for us to have outside of this because the, the names are so long and complicated. Yeah, and,
0: screw the listener, by the way. I, it's just about me. I just want to, like, be the well, youngest-looking version of that, myself.
1: But we can have those, that, those conversations. You yeah. also – I mean, I've posted on social media about this countless times. I, I okay, I'll put,
0: look into uh, it. i ad
1: nauseum, yeah. But, it no so – you, when, you, when you practice medicine, you learn a lot by looking and learning and observing and discovering, okay? And so that's how things have come to me, for instance, when people get perioral dermatitis around their mouth. I figured out over time that uh, many people were using these torta these, um, control toothpaste that had ingredients that were aggravating it, and just by stopping those ingredients or changing the toothpaste can fix it. The same thing with tanning. I see patients who are tan who say, "Well, I'm using sunscreen." Well, what do you want me to do? Stay indoors? Not at all. I just want you to go outside differently. You know, mm-hmm. don't stay inside at noon. Go out and do whatever you want, but just do it differently.
0: Yeah, it's all about the the balance.
1: I wear a bathing suit that has long sleeves, so you know if, if you if you want to wear a bikini, wear a bikini. Jump in the pool, hang around, and then. Come out and put your shirt on. Everybody has seen you already. Now get your shirt back on and protect yourself.
0: I always think, too, you can use your butt skin as like a, as like a benchmark of where you could be. Because that is the most, I mean, totally. unless you're a nudist, that's like super pure.
1: Totally. And, and when I see patients and I do body, you know, skin exams on them, and I look at the front of the body and the back, it looks like two different people most of the time. Because people who were lying in the sun, they lie on their back, right? And they, so their front is facing up. And they've got way more freckles all over the front than they do on the back.
0: This is a question that I close every podcast interview with. Is if you could go back in time and meet yourself somewhere, where would it be? And what would you say?
1: Oh, meet myself. Okay, what would I say? I would say to myself, don't be so hard on yourself. And I would say, look in the mirror today and know that this is the best that you're going to look. Tomorrow, it's going to be different. You know, looking back at pictures of yourself from, you know, way back in the past, um, sometimes it can be a little depressing because, you know, you see what's happening as you get older. But I try to make myself smile and know how good I felt back in those days and how much I did to help myself Stay healthy and looking good, you know back then, but how critical I was of myself too
0: it's I sometimes have you know the wherewithal to tell myself like you should enjoy how you look now because one day you're gonna think, oh my god like i i I would do anything or I just I would like to look like that now you know
1: that you that that's a hundred percent true, and by the way. One other thing I've noticed from being in practice so long, and this, um, and this is pretty much a fact in my mind, is that if you never got any validation for how you looked, you know, if that really wasn't your thing, um, it's easier to get older. It actually is because you never really focused on your appearance, and so it is not a big concern to you. That is true, but it's you can't tell that to, you know, to a young girl who. Um, who is already worried that her hair is too curly, that her nose is too big. You know, you need positive reinforcement for, ever, for as many things as you can in your life. And as a parent, I tried to do that with my kids. You know, no one's perfect, but try to focus on all the good things you have because they are good and nothing you have that's great is going to remain great your whole life.
0: A client of mine who is extraordinarily beautiful, like one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, had a conversation with one of the supermodels, like of the supers. Uh And that model told her, you know, who's really? it's really hard for aging are beautiful women. And she wasn't saying it in a way that was like, I'm so blessed. It was like, imagine your life being formed and shaped and your privilege on your looks and then having to, to deal with that.
1: Well, that's true, but that you're talking about supermodels whose careers have been based on that. But, right. You know, one of my patients that, that has been a patient of mine for twenty-five years or more was one of the supermodels of that generation. And she's so beautiful still, and she and she doesn't focus on that and it's unbelievable to me. And she's magnificent, but she has sun damage and you know, she has loose skin and she's she's beautiful. But it's all relative. She's someone who had something inside her. As you know, back then, she didn't just get validated on, on her looks, but even even average people who, who are not incredibly beautiful, but as, when they were growing up, they were always considered cute or you know pretty or handsome or dapper. You know, it's harder for those people because they did derive some pleasure from how they looked. What about if you're an amazing athlete when you're a teenager? You know, you think of yourself like that for your whole life. Um, mm-hmm. and the way you perceive yourself when you're young sticks with you. We, you know, about people who are um, who were thin when they were young, and then they're heavy when they're old, and they still think of themselves as th- they're a thin p- person in a fat body, or vice versa, right? Yeah. And so you, you, the way you perceive yourself starts when you're young, and that's why if if you're a young person, I hope that your parents help you to see the beauty in every feature that you have and that they don't allow you to start too early focusing on things that you can't really change. You really can't, you know, your genetics are your genetics. If you have a big nose, you can have a nose job, but, um, but there are certain aspects to us that we can't change. So you got to love them.
0: Well, I like that. Um, here's a quick game on our way out if you could, and this is a question I get asked and I'm never able to answer it, but I'm going to ask you anyway, paying it forward. If I could only use one brand of skincare, it would be?
1: I refuse to answer that on the grounds that a main crimen in me. There's not one brand of skincare that I would ever recommend. And I think if you stick to one brand, you're foolish
0: same if with makeup by rain. the way it's like everyone makes some things well and other things not as well and it's about yeah. mixing it's and about, it's,
1: well it's about a product not so much the ingredients but but um the, the 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 validity of what's in them i think that for i think that there's also a big push now um be, for looking for oh this has niacinamide in it or this has that. don't don't buy products because it has one ingredient like that in it and don't not buy products because it has Fragrance in it, let's say, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. don't, out, you're not a cosmetic chemist, the average person don't start over analyzing products, use products that are effective that do that, that have been shown to actually affect your skin. And, um, I, we didn't say this earlier, but let me say it now. I, if you're using products that are effective and helpful and will keep your skin healthy, healthy skin looks nice. And then you want to add on some fluff, go for it. So if you use, if you're using a sunscreen, say, and it is a lotion and it's moisturizing, you don't necessarily need another moisturizer. If you're using a retinoid that's drying, but it's doing good things to the deeper layers of your skin, then use a moisturizer on top to support that. But you don't need to use 25 products on your face. It should be minimal. You should wake up, you should wash your face and everybody should wash their, wash their face in the morning and at night, wash your face, put on an antioxidant, put on, I think DNA repair. And if you are super dry and you think you need an extra moisturizer, okay. And then a sunscreen and then, and then your makeup if you want, but you don't need five different types of moisturizer on top of, of one another. It's all marketing. It's all marketing and it makes me ill. So, Take you know my my uh, warning to people who are getting their information from ads on social media there is nothing now that will reverse aging nothing I don't care what brand is claiming to and there are many and if if the person talking about a product is getting paid to tout that product or gets a commission for every you know skew that he or she sells you know, let's take pause before you purchase. And if you purchase it and you like it, then keep doing it. But don't believe those things. Really don't just believe them.
0: Yeah. And get a life. Get um, a life. <laughs> if you were going to personally get a facelift, who who would you go to?
1: There's so many great surgeons in New York. I, I only speak about New York because that's where I am. But there's so, so many wonderful surgeons in New York. And I recommend several of them. And there are some that are wonderful for faces, but I don't like the noses that they do. And there are some that are great for eyes, but I don't like the faces that they do. So I use different surgeons for different things. You know, there is no such thing as the best surgeon. There's not. Even the best surgeon might have a problem in in an individual patient. Um, The best surgeon is the one who will do the best for you cares about you, who will see you after the procedure if there's a problem, and there are some very popular surgeons now who charge a lot of money, and they're terrible in the post-op care, and I will never send them a patient, so the surgeons that I use are extremely skilled, extremely well-trained, extremely caring, and and by and large, their work is is gorgeous. That doesn't mean that every patient is happy, and I might think that, that they look sub, just incredibly beautiful and refreshed after the surgery. And sometimes they complain, look at my ear. I can see a tiny mark. So, you know, nothing is perfect. And you have to go into surgeries knowing that there might be something you're not 100% happy with. But if the overarching feeling when you come out is that you are happy, then that's a good result. And there's no reason to spend $150,000 to have a surgery. That's just... Criminal. I heard
0: I heard of someone charging four hundred thousand.
1: Well, I I haven't. Luckily, I haven't because I would go after that person. But you know, if, if you are if you, if you have a, someone offering to do a facelift for four hundred thousand dollars and you do it, then that's your problem.
0: It should come with a with a um, beach house or something like that.
1: Come with a beach house and a car and a guaranteed college admission, then maybe it's worth it.
0: If you had downtime for 10 days after a procedure, what would you watch?
1: Oh, God. Mm. Boy, I've already watched it, I guess, right?
0: Well, or there's something you're looking forward to watching or haven't gotten around to.
1: What I would do is I would try to take dance lessons online. That's what I would do. If I had 10 days off and I could use my legs, I would take dance lessons online. And if I could use my hands, I would try to perfect my calligraphy skills, which I love to do. So that's what I would do. Yeah, that's what I would do. Who would you call? Who would I call? Yeah. My mother, but she's not alive anymore. That's the person I like to speak to the most. Mm. Or maybe my kids, but they wouldn't want to speak to me all day long.
0: (laughs) If you're invited to a wedding as a guest,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what's the most you would spend on a new dress?
1: If it were my son's wedding, I'd spend whatever it took to get the dress I want. If it were somebody else's wedding, oh, I don't I, I don't know the answer to that. I spend a lot of money on clothing, but I would definitely want to wear it a lot. I, I'd want to amortize it. You know, I've spent thousands of dollars on dresses, but I'll wear them almost my entire life. I have a favorite Christian Dior dress, which I spent an ungodly amount of money on, and I've worn that to weddings now for 10 years, and I get compliments every single time.
0: And you don't regret it at all?
1: No, I think it's, it was one of my favorite, my best purchases ever.
0: I love that. Where, um, where is the farthest you'll travel for a great meal?
1: (laughs) Try Becca. (laughs) (laughs) Talking like a
0: true New Yorker. Um, what will you still wait in line for? I
1: I hate lines. Um, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Okay. Uh, I, I need to think about that more.
0: <laughs> okay. I know because there, I think even as you age more and more, you're like, there's less that you're like, this is amazing, yeah. but I'm not waiting in line.
1: Correct. I'm not waiting in line. Exactly. Right. Not Maybe even for like
0: you. concert ticket. That no, that's the only I'm thing dying to, to see.
1: Right. That's the only thing I can think of or, you know, getting into a, a baseball game where there's a long line. I, I can't stand lines. I just really hate them.
0: And then the final question is, what is the best kept secret in beauty?
1: For me, DNA repair enzymes, that's the best kept secret in beauty.
0: Okay. I didn't know about that before today. Um, I'm going to definitely look into that. Um, yeah, I just want to thank you. I know that um, you're going to do billable hours for this uh, podcast. So I'll send, submit it to my uh, insurance company. no but in all seriousness i know how busy you are and what a big life that you have and i really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me and i really um enjoyed it
1: it was my pleasure and i hope i get to meet you in person quinn and i'll tell you about my favorite sun protective clothing brands
0: oh yes totally we can geek out about it all right thank you so much and have a great weekend
1: you too Bye. Bye. bye